I'm so glad I met Jake earlier this year. And as you can tell, I'm a big fanboy of his brand, Fair Harbor, and they've been growing like a weed, north of $50 million in revenue now. Uh, in this episode, you'll learn about all the quirky growth hack techniques he had, whether it was putting massive banners on airplanes across the coasts of Florida and California, a Kickstarter campaign that raised, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then, or his radio ads, which who does radio anymore? It's working for him. Remember, if you enjoyed the show today, guys, make sure that you leave a review. That's what our team wants these days. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, and enjoy the show. Explore the minds and marketing strategies behind today's winning brands and businesses. Tap into the power of the creator economy with Earned by Creator IQ. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Earned. Today, I've got Jake Danahy on the show today. Welcome to the show, Jake. Oh, Connor, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And before I get too much into Jake, I have to show just how much of a fanboy I am of his brand, Fair Harbor. So I've got a Fair Harbor hat. He has sent me a Fair Harbor Hawaiian shirt, my own. And I've also got Fair Harbor shorts on that you can't see underneath the camera as well. So I am, uh, I'm decked out right now. I love it. Thanks for the support. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I met Jake at a roundtable with other brand founder CEOs in New York. Um, and for background on Jake, so Jake is the founder or co-founder of Fair Harbor, which is a brand that he founded with his sister, Caroline Danahy, um, back when they were both still in college, which is, you guys are much more ambitious than, ambitious than I was in college. Um, also, you guys are both Forbes 30 Under 30, um, you know, uh, EY Entrepreneur of the Year on your side, um, as well as CEO on your side and, and your sister's creative director, so, uh, or chief creative officer. So. Congratulations on all the all the success you've had so so early in life. No, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So let's go back to the beginning. I really do want to start with this college thing. So what was it that made you decide, like you know, um, Bud Light and beer pong wasn't the thing, and uh, you know, and uh, <laughs> founding a company was the thing. Yeah, so I definitely had uh, my fair share of, uh, we had Keystone Lights at Colgate, so uh, uh, okay. my, my fair share. But, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that actually, it started a lot earlier than that. Um, my, um, I grew up in this place called Fair Harbor in Fire Island, and um, basically grew up surfing and fishing and, and everything like that there. And um, because the Fire Island is a glorified sandbar. The island's about 27 miles long, but only about 100 yards wide. And so any plastic waste that wasn't disposed of correctly went to the waterways. And I love surfing and fishing and, and everything like that. And um, ultimately, that that time in my life really resonated with me. It's like those amazing memories that we had with our family um, back in the day. And um, in college, I went in with the expectation of being an economics major. Um, I played lacrosse uh, as well. Um, and uh, I probably would have gone to finance or real estate or, or something like that, um, you know, which a lot of my peers did and my dad did. Um, he went to Colgate and he was an economics major and ended up going to real estate. And so um, kind of saw that path in front of me, but um, I honestly hated economics and um, <laughs> I, I was fine at it, but it was just like, I just didn't really like excite me. Um, and uh, I remember I was an intro to economics. I'm like, all right, this is not for me. So I ended up taking geography classes um, and uh, geography is not just like studying maps. It's about global ocean currents, climatology, um, how, you know, micro um, 
economic sectors work together and then on a macro scale, how every, how societies evolve. And so it was a super interesting liberal arts degree. Um, but a huge piece of that was um, environmental um, studies and, and how um, like humans impact the environment. Um, and yeah. a big thing that we learned about was the global ocean, uh, global uh, Great Pacific Garbage Patch, um, and this is back in 2013 um, that we started learning about it. And I just really thought back to my childhood in Fair Harbor and Fire Island, and, and ultimately wanted to do something about it. And so, um, ultimately, ended up writing a thesis on plastic waste affecting our oceans, our, our health, and our ecosystem. And in doing so, found a mill that was in converting plastic bottles into yarn. And so um, at the same time, my sister Caroline had always been super into fashion and uh, yeah. actually the resident tree hugger of the family. So sure, her uh, bot mitzvah theme was actually um, sustainability. Her mine was ice hockey and lacrosse. Hers was about sustainability and all her furniture was made out of recycled magazines. So, um, so, she, so basically she was the perfect co-founder for me. Um, and yeah. Turned, yeah. Like, we need to talk about this problem. And so that's when uh, we started. Was that something that kind of came from your parents or was that something that, you know, you guys both independently kind of latched onto as a concept, uh, kind of sustainability generally, right? You a little bit later, her a little bit earlier. Um, it, I don't think it came from our parents. Our parents always like loved being outside and doing things, but they were never really sustainability focused. I think it was really Caroline um, at an early age. And then for me, just wanting to protect our environment and, and the places that, that we really enjoyed. Yeah, I was just reading about kind of some of the work they're doing on the Pacific Ocean Garbage Patch, and uh, it's it's pretty cool, some of the stuff that they're doing out there right now, some of the automated kind of drone technology they're using to collect it, and um, it's cool. It's cool to see people kind of band together around a common initiative, and you were, you were ahead of your time. That was like nine years ago, 10 years ago that you were- Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's been great to see the progress that's being made, but still a lot more that needs to be done. So talk to me a little bit about, so, okay, so you decide to do this, right? So this is what we want to do. There's somebody creating yarn out of plastic bottles. We want to create this brand. <laughs> you know, what, what are the next steps when, because I think your sister was probably, what, 19 when she decided, yeah. you guys decided to do this. So um, what, uh, what were kind of the, the next steps? I wouldn't. I mean, even today, I think I'd, it'd take me a minute to figure out how to start my own apparel brand. So, yeah. So we, uh, so she was a senior in high school. Um, I was a wow. junior in college at this point, um, and uh, we had so because I was a geography major, I had you know no real business uh, experience. My dad was in real estate and um, didn't really know the first thing about starting an apparel company. Um, but we had this uh, this program at Colgate called Thought into Action. And so what they did is they basically um, paired up um, aspiring student entrepreneurs with um, actual real life alumni entrepreneurs. And we'd meet once a quarter, talk through our problems, and they'd really help us figure it out. So like they help, help us incorporate the business. Um, uh, basically, um, I ended up finding a consultant who helped us with production. But the biggest thing was um, when I was a junior, we had the opportunity to pitch at a mock shark tank competition. Um, so the um, university brought in Jessica Alba, MC Hammer, Neil Blumenthal from Lori Parker, Jennifer Hyman from Rent the Runway, um, and they ended up talking to the university. Um, and then four students uh, had the opportunity to pitch in front of them for funding. And so we ended up winning $20,000 in grant money to start the business. And so that helped with the first production run. And we made, we had one board short, um, five different colors, a hundred of each. And uh, that was how we started the business. That's cool. Did... Uh... What was it about the board chart that you're actually able to sell? Like, how did you actually, you know, 
take the first 500 and go out and sell it. Again, uh, I just bootstrapped it. We threw them and after I, you know, finished the semester, um, just threw them in the back of my car with a plastic table and drove out to different beach towns and set up in parks and really spoke to talk to anyone and any, everyone that would hear our story and, um, you know, learned just how to sell and, you know, that rejection was okay. And you just had to sell better the next time. Yeah. I mean, they say the most common path to being a CEO is sales, right? Because I think ultimately what it's about is it's about communication. It's about talking to people. It's about understanding, you know, their perspective, et cetera. Um, yeah, that's awesome. And being rejected and failing, right? But yeah. not letting that, that uh, shatter your confidence. Um, very cool. Well, I, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me, not to skip ahead too much, but, um, you know, obviously you've seen a lot of success. Um, I should have mentioned it earlier, but, you know, the last time we talked, I think you were north of $50 million in kind of net sales, which is really impressive. Congrats on that. Um, you know, and it sound one of the more interesting kind of sound bites was around kind of this unexpected consumer insight you had around, around your shorts and then how you actually leaned into that, right, and how that was a big driver. Um, so talk to me about that a little bit, specifically around the, the kind of board shorts. Yeah, definitely. So we started the business with board shorts, um, which, you know, I'm a surfer. I love board shorts. I've grown up in board shorts um, and board shorts have a fixed waistband and, and uh, they have nothing in them from a lining perspective. Um, and, you know, I think I, I learned firsthand how important it was to listen to customers. And these trunk shows were really what, um, you know, are incredibly imperative to do that because in the first three years we'd done over 500 trunk shows. And so that was just, that was our really only source of revenue. We had a e-commerce site, but we weren't spending any marketing on it. So no one knew who we were or any way to find out about us. And so really this was our lifeblood was going to these different places and, um, and pitching our product. And uh, a common theme that I kept hearing was, um, particularly from women, were saying like, my husband and my kids absolutely hate Mechelaning. Like, I don't even know why it exists. It's ruined vacations. <laughs> like, I have to, I have to cut it out. It's so wasteful, and like, it makes my kids really unhappy. And I'm, and I'm like, all right. Uh, I never, you know, set out to, to solve the Mechelaning issue, but I just kept hearing this over and over again. And so, what we ended up doing was um, making a swim trunk, uh, elastic waistband with a built-in box brief liner um, that we marketed as not your dad's swim short, anti-chafe, fight the chafe. And uh, it just took off for us. And it was um, an incredibly um, amazing insight to learn early on because it's like, listen to the customer, hear what problems they're having and how you can provide a solution um, that you can understand in a matter of seconds. Um, and so that's really, you know, kind of the, the number one learning for us um, when we started was just continue to listen to them. and this weird insight of fighting the chafe and, and replacing mesh lining with a super soft built-in box brief liner. Yeah, and I think it's a great combination of, you know, obviously the brand is a mission-driven brand when it comes to sustainability, but I think that you also have some kind of very unique utility built into the actual product itself, right, based on a consumer need. I think, you know, sometimes people can get caught up in just the mission part of it, right, which is important, right? I think that, that people really connect with that. It's a story they remember, and it makes them feel better about, you know, being a part of this community, but, uh, but you know, People also buy Patagonia stuff because it's just really good clothes, right? It's just like really sturdy and well-built and well-designed and et cetera. Um, so uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that we spoke about, you know, so we're at this round table and uh, I'll recap it for people. We're at this round table 
And we're, you know, supposed to be talking about, you know, mostly direct consumer advertising, right? Which is in everybody's mind, it's like, you know, influencers, Facebook ads, you know, all these things. And then you came out of left field with, I don't know, man, radio is killing it for us. It's like radio. What is this 1957? Like, what are we talking about here? And uh, you're like, no, it's done really well for us. And I think it's uh, even more surprising given that, you know, the, the nature of your products is very visual and a very visual brand. Um, so talk to me a little bit about how you, what made you decide to test radio in the first place? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once you kind of started testing it, just how does radio advertising work? I think most people that listen to this, including myself, never run a radio ad campaign. Like, I just don't know how that, how that functions. Yeah. So it, I think it really stems from how can you reach as many people as possible for the cheapest value possible. Um, and radio is just an incredible way to do that. And we're very close with um, the team over at Untucked, and they advertised on radio early on and, um, and saw success with it. And it's really having, and I think it's important too, because it's how can you get your point across in a matter of seconds um, to convert a customer. And I think that's, you know, people's attention spans are so small these days um, and really helped us, you know, even learning from those early trunk shows, you know, people were intrigued by us because of sustainability, but it wasn't why they bought the product. They bought the product to your point because it was a better, had this, you know, attribute that made their life better. They didn't have, you know, screaming kids or whatever on the beach. And, um, and so from a radio standpoint, um, it really we so we advertised with Sirius XM and it was just able to tell our story at such a wide level um, for at a you know pretty cheap CPM in terms of being able to people driving their cars during the summer and just yep. getting out there and just hammering our, our mission of what we're trying to do. Um, and then we also partnered with Howard Stern and um, and Bobby Bones um, to also you know help tell that story through their voices um, and just kind of continue to hit people over the head with it. And so, um, yeah, it was just a cheap way to, to reach lots and lots of people. And then we measured it from how heard. So at the, after you purchase from us, we have a how heard survey and people actually fill it out more than they don't. So that's pretty cool. That's a good way to kind of capture it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And it's kind of, it makes a lot of sense that you heard this from Untucket. I think it's a similar yeah. kind of, you know, there's a lot of utility, easy to describe utility in there in terms mm-hmm. of the actual product. And it's like, oh yeah, I mean, that's a problem I've had for a really long time. Like some chunks yeah. suck, uh, <laughs> particularly the ones with the uh, mesh liner. Um, cool. Well, let's talk about some of the other channels of acquisition, right? So I know you're just getting started in the influencer space. So we can kind of, I think, put that to the side. But at the same time, I think that, you know, from what I understand, you're north of $50 million gross on your e-commerce mm-hmm. site. So obviously you've got both e-com and offline in terms of distribution channels. Um, that's a lot of revenue to be driving through your, your e-com site. Um, so what are some of the tactics? So now you've, you know, you've figured out radio ads. And actually, you, I want you to talk about trunk shows after this too. But yeah. you figured out radio ads. Those are working. You know, we're kind of stepping up our distribution. Um, what was it? What were some of the tactics that you think led to getting you know, north of $50 million gross on, on your website? Uh, it's... You know, we've done a lot of different things and, and tried to uh, be as diverse as possible. You know, of course, we do spend on on the gorillas in the room in terms of Facebook and Google, um, which are a lot of our spend, if not a majority of our spend. Um, but just trying to so catalog has been a, a big channel um, for us. And so um, really leveraging catalog to um tell much more visual stories, hit a lot of our existing customers, drive, you know, their LTV, um, as well as been using it for prospect. 
prospecting, which has been nice, which has been um, productive for us. Um, and we um, we launched TV this year, so we were doing linear TV, um, which actually has been very productive. And so um, radio. Uh, one of my favorites is airplane banners. Um, so we fly airplane oh. banners on beaches. Uh, and so, which is just perfect because you got such a captive audience in our ideal locations. And so, you know, people are sitting on the beach, not really doing anything. And we fly airplane banners you know, by them. So we, we did California <laughs> on both coasts of Florida, up and down the East Coast. So, what a, <laughs> so what? In terms of an airplane banner, like what's the cost of an airplane banner? And then like, what's the, I mean, there's got to be different levels, right? You get like a little banner, you get like the really big ones, like which, what oh, we do that? for the big boys. Yeah, we do. Uh, yeah, you can do, you can do, there's a bunch of different levels. You can like do uh, letters. So I don't know if you've seen like letters go um, off of the tail. You can do um, letters, pl- you can do um, letters plus a little image. You can do skywriting, but it's just, it, it does, it's the same cost for flying. The only difference is uh, actually the printing of the banner. And so we're like, all right, we'll just invest in printing the banner and, and then we'll fly it as many times as we possibly can. <laughs> I love that. It's like funny because I think it costs the banner, again, like you said, like one-time cost. You can use it over and over again. And then, uh, you know, the reality is flight costs aren't that much, right? Like it's not like comparatively at least. I love yeah. the uh, all the sneaky advertising techniques that you test out, <laughs> like the non-traditional, not sneaky, but like non-traditional. It's uh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, um, and they're conversational points. So people talk about them and they build the word of mouth. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, okay, so you know, you recently announced that you are becoming a B Corp, right? It's a B Corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about kind of, you know, what's entailed in that process, right? What does that look like? And frankly, um, I don't, I've never talked to somebody about it, right? I actually don't know, even though it's become a very popular topic, um, and very popular concept. Um, I've just never asked anybody about it. I'm not even sure if I've talked to somebody who was a B Corp founder. I'm sure I have, but I just don't know. Right. And so would love to understand like what that process looks like. What's the rigor involved? What's the, you know, uh, what are the things that you have to do? And then separately, you know, what, what was it that motivated you to do it, right? Because this is something that, you know, theoretically is a cost to the business in terms of time and effort, money, et cetera, um, you know, that you've got to make sure that uh, everybody's on board with when you decide to do it. So talk me through that. Yeah. So um, yeah, I guess multiple questions there. Um, yeah. We, uh, so we, um, an intern of ours three years ago at the end of her summer, um, suggested that we become a B Corp because we basically talk all about sustainability and, and building a, a better company. Um, and she's like, well, then you need to actually stand behind what you preach. Um, and so I was like, all right, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I appreciate you, you saying that to us. And, and so, um, Sophie, actually, she was a two-time intern and now she works for us full-time. Um, so it took us two and a half years to actually finish the process. Um, just because, and which I actually really appreciate because it's a pretty strenuous process. They really look under, um, everything and you have to provide a lot, a lot of information. Um, so the first thing you have to do is you have to convert from 
a C corp to a uh, public benefit corporation. Um, and so that's, you know, as a C corp, your only fiduciary responsibility is to investors and providing profits to investors. Whereas as a public benefit corporation, you're also fiduciary uh, responsibilities is for social and environmental good um, yep. as, as opposed. So that was, you know, a big step. Um, and then also, uh, you know, just making sure that, you know, um, we did everything by the book, but I, for Fair Harbor in particular, um, we had always had that sustainability and kind of social conscience as a, the backbone of the business. And so we didn't really have to change anything. We just had to kind of go through all of the uh, processes of providing the information, the proof that we actually do all of this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, it took over two and a half years, but um, I'm you know uh, proud to announce that uh, I think it was in May that we're officially uh, named a, a B Corp. That's cool. What? What are examples of things that you have to meet in terms of standards to actually get that get that done? Like, what's the strenuous part of it? Yeah, so fabric certifications, factory certifications. Um, so, like, all of our factories are wrap certified. All of our fabrics are traceable. Um, uh, energy consumption, um, our employee handbook, you know, making sure that we're giving people ample, you know, vacation time, um, paternity policies, maternity policies, um, you know, real there's a lot of different things that we had to make sure that we had um, kind of our, our T's crossed and our I's dotted to that. We, you know, are um, really living up to what their expectations are from a B Corp standpoint. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay. Let's talk a little bit about kind of a topic that you and I talked about recently, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, for tribe, when we founded it, uh, we both kind of initially decided not to raise money. And when we needed the money, we couldn't get it because we were kind of figuring things out. And then we grew very, very quickly and had access to capital, but really didn't raise a lot, right? So we would, you know, essentially bootstrap the business. And so, you know, um, when you had reached out, it was like, hey, I want to talk about this, right? And the topic is something that I think faces a lot of um, CEOs, brand founders, people in executive roles, is around this uh, balance of growth versus profitability, right? So growth, you know, if you hire an extra 10 salespeople and you run an extra 50, you know, airplane banner ads, right, you spend more money and you're less profitable, but theoretically you should grow faster, right? And so, you know, I know that's something that, um, and this topic in particular, I think comes up around, um, you know, when there are significant changes either in the business or in the macroeconomic environment, right? And so for you, I know this is a balance that you're thinking about, right? Like how much do I lean in one direction or the other? So I'd love for you to take uh, kind of the people that are listening in through your thinking on that. Like what was your process? Um, and, you know, what were some of the outcomes? And then I think in addition to that, obviously you've added, you know, a large financial partner um, to the business fairly recently, right? So congratulations on that part. So how did you incorporate them into that thinking? What was their, their feelings and contributions? Yeah. So when we first started, um, it was, uh, so we had that initial brand money, um, from Colgate, um, which yep. allowed us to invest in our first line of production and then, um, basically sold, went out and actually physically sold our products, um, made a little bit of money and we're like, okay, well let's, now we want to make another line. So we ended up uh, doing a Kickstarter campaign in, uh, December of 2015, which helped us fund our second line of production. Uh, and then, You've done uh, all the growth hacks. All the different <laughs> I've tried everything. <laughs> uh, really. And, and so, and then, you know, we, we kind of just really just 
so we took that, sold that. I graduated college in 2016, did it full time, just myself working in my parents' basement. Um, and then in 2017, um, we're like, all right, you know, we've already done tr 500 trunk shows at this point. Um, we can't clone ourselves. So the only way to, to really grow is to focus on um, e-com and, and that's a good way to amplify us. And so, um, but always really viewed e-com as just another distribution channel as opposed to the end all and be all. Um, as, and so um, we raised about $500,000 and um, the objective was to, how can we learn um, how to grow uh, an e-com uh, business? And um, when I was raising that $500,000, um, we had an investor, um, our, this, this gentleman who I used to coach lacrosse for, um, I went and pitched him to in, invest, um, to, to raise capital. And he's like, Jake, I don't want your, your cap. I don't want your equity. He's like, you need to learn how to run a fundamental business because he's like, if you just raise too much money right now, you won't learn how to actually, um, build a business. Um, and so he said, well, I, I won't buy your equity, but what I will do is I will, um, help you finance your inventory because you need to learn how to turn inventory. And so, um, he gave me a certain amount of money. He said, you can have this, buy your inventory and you need to pay me back, um, after you sell it. And so, um, I went to sleep every night, um, thinking about, um, this gentleman, uh, just in that I had to pay him back after the season. And because I had to do that and finance the inventory, uh, finance our inventory with debt financing as opposed to equity, um, I was just very kind of cautious and um, scrappy in terms of how we actually sold the product. And so yep. we turned inventory. So we did that for, from 2017 all the way until 2019, growing substantially year after year, but making, you know, making sure that we um, made profits and that we were profitable on the first purchase. Um, and so that was kind of, very uh, fundamental for the business and how we're able to grow um, and just learning good business fundamentals. Um, and so, yeah, that was really from day one being, you know, valuing our dollars and valuing our money um, and, and continuing to, to build that way. Have you read uh, Shoe Dog? I have. There's actually a couple of copies behind me right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For those that don't know, it's the book about one of my favorite books of all time. Wait, say that again. I said it's one of my favorite books of all time. Yeah, it's a great one. And uh, for those that don't know, right? So it's a book about Phil Knight. Is it an autobiography or a biography? Uh, he wrote it. So I believe he that's wrote it, yeah. autobiography. And so during his, it just reminded me so much of, you know, during his early days, this was kind of pre-venture capital, pre, you know, access to high risk uh, capital. And, um, you know, he would, he would, uh, you know, sell every shoe he had and then use every dollar he had left from those shoes to buy the next round and just kept doing that over and over again. And, uh, you know, it was just, uh, it was a crazy time. Um, just to the rate at which his business was growing and the fact that he couldn't get access to capital was like wild. Right. But I think it ended up making him, you know, better, better business person. Um, so another topic that I think is really interesting when I look at kind of your business is obviously the relationship between you and your sister, right? And so, and I don't know if, um, I'm not sure if you've read it, but The Founder's Dilemma by Noam Wasserman. Have you read that book before? I haven't, no. Okay. It's a really good one, right? So um, what he did was he studied, it was like 10,000 different high growth businesses, um, oops, studied 10,000 different high growth businesses um, and looked at them every year for 10 years in a row, right? And then what he did was looked at the kind of founding relationship. So what was the pre-existing relationship of the founders when they created the brand? And then tried to figure out kind of what predicted success. 
And so it's like, okay, it's better to have two founders than four, than one, right? Because two, there's enough equity to go around versus four, it's a little bit too, you know, it's a little bit too split up. Um, one of the things you looked at was what is, you know, how do the founders know each other, right? And so, and it showed a ranking of success, right? So the best was coworkers. So if you're former coworkers, highest kind of prediction of success. Then you were, uh, then was friends, then was random acquaintances, then was family, right? So family was fourth out of that list. And, you know, what he pinned it down to was, you know, when you go into business with a family member, um, you know, you, uh, you have a pre-existing relationship that you're trying to protect that makes it very hard to give the other person critical feedback. Um, it's the same thing to a lesser degree with a friend, right? Where like there's a pre-existing relationship you have with that friend that you don't want to harm, right? By giving them critical feedback. So I'd love to hear about kind of how you and your sister have worked together because obviously you're coming up on, you know, quite a few years of working together now and it seems to be going really well. So what's the rhythm that you've found that works well in terms of you guys being able to work together even when times aren't ideal? Um, yeah, I'd love for you to kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, it's, I, I need to read that book. That sounds super interesting. But uh, we, I think, work. So I've, I've worked with friends. I've worked with siblings. And I've worked with actually random acquaintances um, in terms of our entire like founding process. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, by far and away, working with Caroline has been the best relationship out of those. Um, and I think what we realized at a really early stage was, number one, we respect each other um, yep. tremendously. And then we also have differing skill sets. And because of that, um, that has really allowed us to be great business partners. Like, I really trust her through and through from a creative standpoint, from a photography standpoint, from a copy standpoint, she's just really, really good at that. And, and she trusts me from a production standpoint, from an e-com standpoint, from a, um, you know, sales standpoint. And so um, we really, I think, complement each other well. Where it hasn't worked in the past is when we've had kind of equals that have similar skill sets. And that's where really I've seen heads start to bump. Um, but because Carolyn and I don't have the same things that we're good at and focused on, we really trust each other to do those things well. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like there's a mutual kind of respect for what the other person does and the fact that they're actually good at that job. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So last question, and then we'll get into some fun kind of end of show questions. So, you know, one of the other topics we've talked about is kind of the, the decision around being CEO, right? So mm -hmm. I think it's fairly common for younger CEOs when you do see this meteoric rise early on um, to hand off the reins, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, Ben at Gymshark or the co-founders at Google or whatever it is, right? And so I know that's something that you've thought a lot about, right? And I think you're doing a great job as CEO and want to continue doing that, right? So which mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, how do you think about that decision moving forward? And what were some of your thought processes kind of prior to that in kind of previous stages of the business? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's really, Caroline and I have a tremendous vision for where the business, where we want the business to go. Um, and I think at the current point, it's still putting a lot of those puzzle pieces in place in terms of the right people involved from a, um, you know, from a creative standpoint, from a product standpoint, from an operation standpoint, and making sure that, you know, our vision is really 
at the core of, of what we're building. And so, and I believe that I'm the right person at the moment to really bring those people together um, and move it forward. Um, and, you know, I'm not opposed to the conversation down the line if there is someone that's better than me from an operational standpoint, but at the current moment in terms of where we're going and, and the products that we're building, like I'm a true merchant in terms of production and product and making sure that we have the right product. And so being in that role, I think is important, at least for the time being, um, but, you know, there will be different levers of growth that we we'll want to unlock. And, you know, I might not be the right person to do that, but for the current time, um, you know, I think between me and Caroline at the helm are, are the right people for our business. Yeah, that makes sense. What is the big vision? So you say we have a vision for where we want to take it. Like, what is that? If you know, you feel comfortable talking about it. Yeah, of course. We want to be the next iconic American heritage brand. We want to be um, with our customers 365 days a year. We want to um, build better products and have a stronger relationship with our customers than I think incumbent brands do. Um, uh, and we want our brand to consistently have a soul. So uh, it's really from um, all the, a lot of different customer touch points from retail is a strong initiative of ours. Um, wholesale, continuing to build that out, um, as well as really optimizing our e-com um, business. But women's, um, we've had a really strong start uh, with, and we're excited about um, expanding that further um, and continuing down that path, as well as um, kids has been awesome for us. So really building a, a great, wholesome family brand for every member of the family um, is what our, our true vision is and doing it the right way, sustainably and, and with great products. Yeah, you mentioned kids earlier. I think that uh, you're certainly reaching the parental audience on radio. I can tell you that much, though. That's, that's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, the kids, kids uh, at least don't have access to their credit cards yet, so we need to, we need to get the moms. <laughs> I remember a brand I talked to that was, you know, um, definitely for kids, right? Their biggest problem was that they would, uh, you know, they had a lot of YouTube content, and they had a huge drop-off right at checkout because kids didn't have a credit card, right? They would come in, like, want to buy it, just not, not have a credit card or not have their parents' credit card. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, let's do kind of one fun end-of-show question. So, you know, you said that you used to like to kind of surf, be outdoors, do all those things. Are you still able, as the, uh, the CEO of a very fast-growing brand, uh, able to kind of take time out? Or is it something that's kind of gone by the wayside? Man... Uh, it was, I wish this, I wish I could say I surf a lot. I, so three years ago, actually it's four years ago at this point, I got 82 days in, in New York. Yeah. And that's a lot, that's a lot, <laughs> but that was yeah. like literally just me working by myself and my sister was still in college. Um, and so I was, I was living at my parents' house and I had access to a car and I would just drive out before work most mornings. Um, it's been more challenging to do that now. Uh, so I haven't, I haven't, been, I haven't there's just a, a couple more moving parts. So, but I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting back in the water soon. Yeah. That's the, uh, let my people go surfing, right? The, uh, yeah. uh is it Yvonne Chouinard? Is that his yeah. name? Yeah. That's uh, another one of my favorite reads. Yeah. No, it's a good one. It's a good one. Well, I really appreciate you taking out the time, Jake. And thank you so much again for the, the great gear on my side, both stuff that I've purchased and stuff that you sent to me. Um, and uh, I'm excited to continue to watch the success and stay in touch as you guys build this, uh, this next great American Heritage brand. Should be exciting. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Connor. I really appreciate it. I'm glad you like the gear. Awesome. Thanks, Jake. Be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Earned by Creator IQ. Creator IQ is your all-in-one solution to grow, manage, scale, and measure your influencer marketing program. 
Ready to unlock the power of the creator economy? Get started with a demo today at creatoriq.com.